From 1966 to 1968, youth in urban China were embroiled in factional battles in what many of them believed to be a revolution of a lifetime. I'm James Evans at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies, and in today's Harvard on China podcast, I'm talking with Professor Guo Bin Yang about how China's revolutionary tradition translated into factional violence in the Cultural Revolution. Guo Bin Yang is the Grace Lee Boggs Professor of Sociology and Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. His recent books include The Power of the Internet in China and The Red Guard Generation and Political Activism in China, both from Columbia University Press. I started our interview by asking Professor Young about an image he displayed during his recent presentation at Harvard University. In your presentation that you gave just now at Harvard, you started off by showing us a photo of a cemetery in Chongqing. Perhaps you can describe what this cemetery was and why it was important. So it was one of the very few cultural revolution cemeteries known in China nowadays. Over 400 people who were killed in factional battles were buried there. And the people who were buried there were mainly from one faction, the major faction in Chongqing, and it's known as the August 15th faction, Baiyao faction. It was a rebel faction uh, in 1966, fighting against the conservatives, but then it defeated the conservative faction in December 1966 and split into two more factions. And it was the bigger, but the more moderate of the two rebel factions in Chongqing. So another reason why this cemetery is important is because many years ago, actually, in Chongqing, there were development plans to basically get rid of it in order to build commercial buildings. There was kind of a local activist, local movement to try to preserve it. And in 2010, I believe, it was officially listed as a municipal level cultural relic to be protected and preserved. So it's important, but now it's not open to the public. I was going to say, there's that sort of tension between, on the one hand, people trying to preserve it as a piece of history, but mm-hmm. also you were saying how difficult it was for you to access the cemetery. Mm-hmm. So where's the trade-off there between sort of remembering the past, but also trying to, I was going to say, normally we say whitewash, but in this case, I guess, mm-hmm. redwash. Yeah. Part of the reason is because uh, the Cultural Revolution, in a way, has never disappeared from Chinese lives. It's a lingering and something that certainly the authorities do not want to touch. But at the same time, it's just uh, such a vital part of the history that uh, even if the party does not allow people to talk about it, people still talk about it. People cannot forget about it. So there are uh, all kinds of informal research networks in China. People who experience that history would collect Cultural Revolution relics and then they might compile local histories. Uh, so there's a lot, a lot of interest. And so part of your argument, uh, and this is all part of a new book that is, uh, has just come out as well, you talk about the question is not so much why people committed violence in the first place, which, you know, it's very well documented, but why were so many people willing to risk their own lives in acts of violence as part of the Cultural Revolution? What do you mean by that? First of all, the reason why I wanted to emphasize the second kind of question is because we have a lot of work already out there about why people committed violence, why there was violence. And then I think there is another side of the story, which is understand why people were willing to actually lose their lives. It's an important question to ask because I think it will tell us a lot asking this question. And then following this question, we'll need to understand the whole history of the education and socialization of the entire generation. My argument that at the moment when the Cultural Revolution started, the Red Guard movement started, 
the younger generation believed that this was their opportunity to carry out a real revolution and later on a real revolutionary war. It had a lot to do, uh, it has everything to do with their upbringing, with their education. A very important message of that education, which I think is deeply carved into the bones and minds of this generation, was that they, they were the successors of the Chinese Revolution. They got to carry the Chinese Revolution onward. And the Chinese Revolution in 1960, early 1960s, was facing grave danger, you know, Soviet revisionism and so on and so forth. So I think that's uh, a way to understand how this younger generation is used before just threw themselves uh, passionately into that uh, political movement. Professor Rob McFarquhar here obviously writes a lot on the Cultural Revolution. I feel like I could hear his voice asking this question in your talk, uh, but you talk about the emphasis on culture in the Cultural Revolution, the fact that it is a cultural revolution. Professor McFarquhar's question, I guess, would be, what was cultural about the Cultural Revolution? Well, it was a cultural revolution, but I would not say it was not a political revolution. It was not a social revolution. It was uh, everything. But I think uh, culture was such an important element uh, of the whole political process that it should not be underestimated. Uh, so having said that, I would say that culture in the cultural revolution, uh, we, we might just list a whole page, pages, pages of things cultural in the cultural revolution. But most important thing in the cultural revolution's official document about the launching of cultural revolution, which is the, called the, the 60 points, is about the transformation of people's outlooks. I think that's the key point there. And by that, the culture would mean ideologies, uh, cultural values, deeply held beliefs, right? I think those are the key elements of culture. But if you ask a sociologist, of course, if you ask 10 sociologists, uh, you'll get 10 definitions of culture. I would also include among culture um, for the sake of discussion, but also in my analysis that uh, there are be deeply uh, held beliefs and values, ideology on, on one hand, but on the other hand, you have what are the manifestations of these things? They are, for instance, Mao's Little Red Book, right? Uh, slogans, uh, wall posters, uh, songs and music, uh, Almost everything in daily life that the young people would experience regularly, that was the entire cultural package. When we're talking about why culture matters, you reference Swidler's idea of this toolkit of culture. So there being sort of lots of different ideas, but then how do you connect this toolkit to values and norms, rituals and other manifestations of culture? And the idea of toolkit is, I think is very helpful to think about the culture that it refers to all kinds of ways of doing things, basically. A repertoire, you know, if you use the drama analogy, it's a repertoire of, of singing, of doing politics, uh, and it could be a huge repertoire, it could be numerous things. But when it comes to real political practice, not everything in the toolbox will be used, right? There are all kinds of tools. Some people have to choose some tools over other tools. How is that decided? I think that's a challenge for all activists in the past and at the present. I think. In order to understand that, we need to understand values and ideologies and people's political visions and how do people see their future would be, what kind of future they want, what kind of political demands, political visions they have, often helps to understand what kind of cultural tools they might use in their political struggle. And I guess the key question is what links these cultural tools and this toolbox to people actually acting on them, to the behaviour that we see in the cultural mm -hmm. revolution? What, what is the link yeah. and how do you measure that? Yeah, that's, that's a great point. You know, as I said, young people are exposed uh, 
on a daily basis to all kinds of uh, cultural artifacts and ways of doing things. And therefore, these became part of their toolkit in the Rega movement. A major part of the Rega movement was the Rega Press. It was huge press, it's publication of uh, their leaflets, pamphlets, uh, newspapers, wall posters. There were wall posters all over campuses and uh, there were editorial offices. In doing all these things, they were actually mobilizing their prior knowledge. For instance, in writing a wall poster, they actually care about not just their rhetoric, the revolutionary rhetoric, but also the style, the calligraphy. That's the important part of the whole thing. And then they've, they've learned this, right? They practice in their schools, you know, writing calligraphy. So it, it's sort of natural in a way when a movement, political movement came, they would uh, make use of these kind of skills, editing a, a newspaper as well. You know, writing polemics, uh, that's something they learned a few years before. As I mentioned in my talk, there was the two-year kind of uh, polemic of the Chinese Communist Party with the Soviet, you know, USSR. And polemics were published nationwide in major newspapers and broadcasts on radio and uh, was a very important national campaign. And that culture was passed on to the younger generation because they were learning about this uh, all the time in their schools because it was a mass campaign to learn about this polemic. So when the Red God movement came, their rhetorical skills, their, you know, their writing skills, they borrowed from that kind of experience. You have a wonderful slide in your talk, which was an image of Mao Zedong's quotes, but done as Tai Chi movements, it, it looked like. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, so yeah. almost like a physical embodiment mm -hmm. of right. Mao Zedong thought. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess that's a really great image in terms of the linking between what's said, the rhetoric, and what's done. That's right. Thanks for bringing up that point. That's a, uh, that's a good example of how political culture, you might say, on a national scale, uh, a high ideology, became part of everyday life, individual lives, and then you practice this on a daily basis. That particular example is about quotations of Chairman Mao, and then that language is translated systematically into the language of those kind of gymnastic moves, Taiji-like moves. And you know, school children were practicing those kind of moves, and then, of course, at the same time, memorizing Mao's uh, quotations. And I, I guess the, the key word that we haven't mentioned yet is performativity. Uh, and in particular, this performativity of an imagined revolution that's going on, or the sort of collective imaginary of idealistic goals. In what way is performance and performativity key to the Cultural Revolution? I think it's key in all kinds of ways. Uh, but I want to say, first of all, that I've sometimes heard that uh, some people say that the idea, the language of performativity, performance is kind of fashionable yeah. <laughs> kind of uh, language in social science analysis or cultural literary analysis. Um, and I'm not actually trying to be fashionable here. I thought the, the idea of performance in my case is uh, based mainly on sociologist Irving Goffman's uh, work, uh, Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. And his argument is that social life, uh, individual self, you cannot understand it without understanding the idea of performance, that this part of our self-identities is deeply part of our identities. So, so that's the sort of background again. This, But in the Cultural Revolution and the Red God movement, you might say, is an extreme example of performance. You see this from movies, footage of documentary films, that it was clearly dramatic and performative in nature. The waving of flags on Tiananmen Square, right? the slogans shouting, uh, 
uh, war posters and uh, mass meetings. Those are all clearly part of that political movement. But in my case, it's not just about random performing, creating a spectacle for an audience. But uh, in the case of factional battles, uh, some of these radicals, uh, they had they memorized Marxist-Leninist theories. They learned uh, Mao's quotations by memory. They would invoke this kind of language, theories, concepts to guide their own action. That's a kind of enactment, a performance of political culture. That's what the key point I tried to make. But I think it's an idea that's uh, very helpful in understanding all kinds of uh, dynamics in that period. I know a main feature of your book is this idea of factionalism, as you just mentioned. You talk about the Cultural Revolution as an uncertain political process that compels this sort of competitive performance. So there's competition between different factions about who can be more revolutionary or who can embody the Cultural Revolution better. Does that mean that factionalism is sort of inspired by this performativity? I wouldn't say it's inspired by the performativity. But um, it's very difficult to say that it's the result of performance or almost, uh, you can say that's the factionalism itself was a performative process. That factionalism developed and escalated gradually into moments of violence and very intense physical conflicts. That process itself was a performative process. I mean, it's hard to kind of really analyze this by arguing which is the result, which is the cause, which is the outcome. I think the process itself was performative. And you might say that the performing nature of politics uh, enabled or called upon people to keep escalating into violent moments. So in that sense, you might say, you know, performance uh, led to more violence, but I, I didn't try to make that kind of argument. You've touched on a really important point, and it goes back to your mentioning of Red Guard Press, I guess, which is when studying a topic like this, what is your data? Mm-hmm. How do you measure some of these arguments that you're making? The reason why, why the book actually took a long time was because new archives, uh, new data keep becoming available, and I wanted to uh, read everything. So, for instance, uh, right now we have uh, about 150 volumes of reprints of Red Guard newspapers, and They appeared over a period of uh, decades, and I went through all of them, basically. I also did oral history kind of interviews with former uh, Sendang Yus, former Red Guards, uh, former activists from, for instance, Democracy War period. And tried to collect letters, diaries uh, written by young people from that time. Uh, Even literary works actually can be useful, I think, in studying Chinese society, Chinese politics, especially of the Maoist period. I think literary works can be quite revealing. For instance, uh, songs that were produced and circulated sort of underground by Sendang Yus. They were called Sendang Yus songs. Uh, poems, they were circulating among themselves, handwritten manuscripts. And those were actually very interesting in understanding how their thinking was changing slowly over a period of 10 years, you know, from 66 to 76, 78. So I tried to make use of all these kinds of data you know, have to be careful with, with all of them too, because you know, have to come to these uh, archives with a kind of critical 
reflexive uh, approach. I have to be careful about them, but I think it's important to make use of both historical archives and later interviews in oral history data. One of the key ways that you've gone about this is by interviewing individuals. When you're interviewing these people and they're looking back in hindsight at the Cultural Revolution, do you see a nostalgia or a trauma or both? Mm -hmm. Well, it's an interesting question. Sometimes I think it depends on where and when the interviews are done. Because the same people, if they are interviewed in different times, may tell the stories in somewhat different ways. You know, emotional tones would be different. The major wave of interviews that I did was in the late 1990s. And that was when this generation was hit the hardest. Uh, First wave of uh, unemployment, they were laid off, basically. And so I remember people who I interviewed, they were telling me really miserable stories about how, oh, even in the Cultural Revolution, when we were sent down, the party actually were uh, taking care of us. At least we were somebody. But now, you know, uh, we are fired and nobody wanted to take care of. They could be very emotional kind of stories. And then in more recent years, when you talk to people who, for instance, um, spent time in prison uh, because of their radicalism in Cultural Revolution, uh, you still find some believers that um, despite their experience, despite this, their sufferings, uh, despite prison time, they still felt there was a reason for them to get involved in the politics uh, of the time in that way. I think it just shows, in a way, things could change, people's ideas could change over time, and depending on the circumstances, but some things don't change, uh, that uh, you can see the profound influences of that historical experience on people in different ways. I want to change tack slightly for the latter part of this interview. Many people will know your work on the Chinese internet as well. You have a paper from 2003 that I know is used in a lot of classrooms. That paper was the argument that the internet is not going to make China more open, but actually is going to allow the government to have greater control over its population. You say that you started doing the Cultural Revolution, then you did a lot of research on the internet, Mm -hmm. and now you're back to the Cultural Revolution. Right, yeah. What do you learn from each of these different topics that helps okay. inform the other? Right. Well, there's one um, one thread across basically two very different historical periods, 60s to 80s, and then the internet book is 90s to uh, 2008-2009. So the same thread is about political activism, about social activism, and it's activism of the younger generation. So in a sense, it's that's the kind of consistent, my long-term interest in political activism in China. Um, I might say that I got into the study of the internet quite by chance. When I was working on the Cultural Revolution and Sandown Youth Generation, I just happened to come across websites that they were running. Uh, that's the you know, early 2000s. They were already setting up websites things like you know the online homes the virtual homes of sandown use so they were using the internet to try to reconnect with their former comrades in arms and i thought that's well that's fascinating and uh, i was sort of lured more and more into that development and then i also bumped into early cases of online activism in china in bbs forums online communities 
at that time, I thought, well, this is fascinating kind of area. I got to follow this uh, carefully. So I began to, to follow that development, collect data. So for quite a long time, I was working on these two projects at the same time. Uh, and then they sort of mutually inform each other in some ways, because I refer to a similar set of theoretical literature about the social movement and political activism. But I, I was also particularly interested in what things might have changed right uh, since the Cultural Revolution. How is the internet activism, new kind of activism, citizen activism, different from regular activism or even from the student uh, protesters protesting in 1989? That's also one of the key questions that I had in mind. Uh, and I, you know, doing these two projects together helped me to think about these differences and continuities uh, as well as discontinuities. Yeah, and I guess with the thread of political and social activism, there was a lot of hope, it seemed, that like the Arab Spring, the internet might herald this sort of liberal democracy takeover mm -hmm. in China, mm -hmm. but a lot of it unfounded in fact. Mm -hmm. In recent years, as the internet has penetrated deeper into China and as artificial intelligence and uh, internet technologies have improved, we've seen more and more control of the internet by the Chinese government. Where do you see the internet and social activism developing into the future in China? Good question. <laughs> question. But let me uh, again, a few things. First is things have been changing, but then we, I think we still need to emphasize that in the early years of the internet, like, let's say in China, right, late 1990s, early 2000s, that people's excitement about uh, the new technologies and possibilities of communicating with one another, of expressing themselves, including expressing their political views, including voicing their concerns to government authorities. That excitement was real and was important to understand as well in that context, especially because it happened against the background of 89, right? One part of my goal in writing my book about the internet which came out in 2009, was tried to emphasize that point that despite censorship, there was already a lot of censorship of internet at that time. We need to really understand all kinds of things people were doing with the internet and online, which they were not able to do in earlier times. And they were excited about that. They were building communities. They were in a, in a way, you know, trying to build new moralities, new values. And, you know, they had excited imaginations about new forms of freedom and openness. I think that's real and need to be seen in that historical context. And that also raises the question that, well, things today about Chinese internet politics and culture seems to be very different from that time. So the question is, for me, not so much that, you know, the internet is not about offering possibilities for political participation or protest and bringing democracy, as why things have changed in such a way, right? I think really asking historical question that in a matter of a decade or more, things have changed dramatically. How to understand this kind of change, right? Why have people's visions for a democratic and open kind of online culture being smashed, shattered uh, in such ways over this period. I think that's the kind of question uh, that we want to ask and we want historical analysis of the entire historical development. So that I think that will help us understand a lot of things about what's happening now, Chinese internet. Uh, one of this is, is, I think it's also part of the bigger story about internet is that the ways in which government manage and govern the internet have also been changing. So in, in response to changing ways, changing forms of online communicating, online expression, government has 
being becoming more and more skillful in governing and managing the internet. And a lot of the new developments is about how the government actually is still using relatively you know, old-fashioned forms of censorship, you know, like blocking, filtering websites. Uh, but it's also using a, another kind, which is mobilizing the public in support of government agendas. And there's also so much fake news, commercial news, and you are cheated and your kids will be cheated. We've got to regulate the internet and you've got to support the government agenda. That appeals to the public a lot. And so this is kind of a slight change in shifting strategy of control. And that, that's what's happening. I think that's one sign of a bigger agenda of managing internet, but not just managing internet, but managing society as well, social management. It's um, almost kind of managerial approach to managing society and managing the internet. Very Foucauldian. Foucauldian, exactly. I, I would say it's a very Foucauldian approach. And then, of course, there is also a kind of mobilization of uh, Chinese uh, own moral, ethical principles about social harmony, right? Peace, social harmony, family values, Confucianism, and so on. We see this all over the place now, and that's part of the new package of uh, government discourse. So where does this lead to in the future? It's hard to tell. <laughs> I guess that's the, the dilemma of prediction mm. in academia is you uh, will inevitably be wrong at some point. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to see where this might go. You know, I, I don't think we'll see uh, dramatic changes in the coming years. Uh, we see a quite persistent pattern for the past few years. This might continue for some years. Well, to finish off, I have a quick fire round for you. So our first quick fire question is, uh, what is your favorite Chinese food? Gong bao ji ling. So I don't even hesitate. Straight away. Straight away. A good way to tell whether the restaurant has good Chinese food is try the basic thing. Your favorite place in China? That's hard to say. You know, I guess people's favorite places may change from time to time. Recent years, my favorite place is Hangzhou. Uh, partly because I've been working quite closely with um, some scholars in Zhejiang University. So I go there often, um, but of course, Hanoi is just irresistibly pretty, right? The Xihu, the West Lake, has these old trees lining the streets. I, I love it. What is your favorite Chinese saying? My favorite Chinese saying? One phrase I like is Liu An Hua Ming Yu Yi Cun. You can think of this as a Chinese saying because it's such a well-known poems and the lines from poems become part of the Chinese saying that people sort of uh, quote this all the time. And you know how I many is the idea, you know, you might walk in a dark forest, you might run into a, a bright spot and then another wonderful little village there. I like that kind of image. I think, I don't know how to translate it. Dark willow trees, bright blossoms, another village. So this is kind of <laughs> literary trans. It's, you know, you, you walk around and then you, you have uh, a different scenery. A book that you have read on China recently that you would recommend? Um, Xu Bing has a book, sociology colleague. Um, he's uh, now in Emory University about Sichuan earthquakes. And I think it's a very, very good book. It's a sociological study of how the earthquakes uh, in 2000. Eight in Sichuan was a disaster, of course. It was a disastrous moment and it triggered uh, kind of activism f uh, from dissidents like Ai Weiwei and so on. But it also was a moment of a great thriving of civil society that people came together you know, in an extraordinary way to rebuild. Um, and our final question, a class that you took on China or have taught on China that helped change your thinking about the country? 
I guess I, you know, teaching my own class is a way of uh, always uh, learning new things. So one, one class I teach regularly for a long time. I've changed uh, jobs of several places, but I've always been teaching this class. So currently it's called Media, Culture, and Society in Contemporary China. Uh, I've taught this for many years, and I, each time I teach it again, I actually learn new things about China. I usually start from the end of the Cultural Revolution. So it's basically contemporary China sociological approach. Um, starting with the late 1970s all the way to the present. Part of the semester is really devoted to a chronological study of Chinese social change from late 70s to the present. And the second part is uh, structured according to different topics and themes. And, and this kind of process, I always learn something new. Even reading some old articles and books, I have new ideas, new thinking. And then, of course, each time I have to update the syllabus and bring in new, new writings. One thing I try to do is to make it really very interdisciplinary. So it's in, sometimes it's sociological class, sometimes it's more historical. But I try to incorporate writings by scholars from various fields. And I always enjoy uh, reading this kind of perspectives from scholars in very different fields. Well, Guo Yang, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, James. Don't forget to subscribe to the Harvard on China podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you get your RSS feed. <laughs>